This is 4L with Ryan O'Neill and Rebecca DeCoster. Episode two, DeCoster. It's very exciting stuff. <laughs> well, no, it's episode one because it wasn't the first one introduction. Not really an episode. I'm still counting that as an episode. I'm calling it chapter one. All right. Um, so what's chapter one going to be about? Well, some ex- there was some exciting news this week, and I feel like we have to talk about it because it's um, contemporary legal issues. And I think there, there are a lot of deep thoughts that I have about this particular breaking news. Uh, this is not going to be about the Tiger Woods surgery, though, is it? It's not going to be about Tiger Woods, but it is going to be about the demise of Kim Ye. Oh, so who, who could have seen that one coming? I'm well. <laughs> regardless of the fact that it was entirely predictable, um, and entirely scripted for their brand new series coming out on Hulu. Yeah, let's not pretend that the timing is coincidental. Right. Yeah, and it's hard to not give someone the benefit of the doubt given a family members past history of coordinating releases of things to coincide with TV premieres. Sure. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to dance around that one as best I can, but anyways. Yeah. Um, well, in here, I have other thoughts as well about the whole thing. Um, I was shocked, and I don't know what your stance is, Shocked may be too strong. I was surprised by coming out of the gate with a request for joint custody when the mental health issues are pretty well documented. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if, if that initial request actually means much, but it was still surprising to me. Well, so let's talk about that just from the standpoint of what we see and deal with. And that is that, look, what you put into your initial complaint, what you lead with coming into court, um, tends to be what I would always consider your strongest position, right? So if somebody comes into court and says, I need sole custody of my children, and then it it ends up sort of uh, being negotiated down to a joint custody arrangement, that's fairly common and something that we see quite a bit of. You don't really see it though the other way, right? You don't see somebody coming in saying, I want to do joint custody. And then by the time the divorce judgment's entered, that person has now wound up with sole legal custody, particularly in a case where, as you said, the the mental health issues that, let's be honest about, Kim Kardashian's been very public addressing in terms of Kanye's you know, uh, battles publicly that he's had. I mean, the the presidential run sort of shed some light on those things. Sure. Um, you know, it, it would, to me, it would be very, you know, interesting how she could then go into court and say, oh, I know I asked for joint, but oh, by the way, I've now recently discovered that he has some underlying mental health issues that I think need to be addressed. Like, I think we're all on notice that those exist. And obviously, you know, you want folks who, who are, are having to battle those things to get the help that they need. Um, 
so I, I, I too was surprised that she started with the joint custody, but I think maybe let's on this one, give them the benefit of the doubt that they have found a way to work together and that this isn't going to be the like acrimonious, you know, divorce that we've seen play out with other celebrity couples. Well, right. So, and my thoughts are probably threefold on that. One is that I agree that most of what we see is someone filing an initial complaint, taking the strongest position that they can with respect to custody and often parenting time. I don't think that's a great strategy a lot of the time. I think if you come in too hot, um, you're setting a tone for the rest of the divorce proceedings and beyond potentially. So if you come in super hot and say, I want sole legal, sole physical, um, because I'm upset about whatever, grown-up stuff is going on or whatever. Um, that sends a real clear message to the other parent about how willing you are to work with them as a co-parent. Right, and, and, and just to add on to that, I think you also lose credibility when you go in with those positions that aren't justified by the facts of the case. Right. Well, I think sometimes yeah. lawyers will say, well, I'm going to do the, you know, go with the strongest advocacy position and ask for sole legal, sole physical, you know, uh, the other parent to have supervised parenting time. And then as the facts sort of unravel, it's, well, wait a second, both parents were active in the children's lives. Both parents were taking the kids to school functions and to doctor's appointments and dropping the kids off at school and picking them up from school. And there's never been a shred of any type of issues, you know, in terms of the other parents' ability to provide care for their children. But now because the marriage is ending, we're going to take the most aggressive position we can to sort of put ourselves in a position of perceived strength. And that's why I say perceived, because I, I think it ultimately backfires in a lot of cases. Well, that's true. And I think there, sometimes it gets filed that way because um, you don't really necessarily want that or even think you can get that, but there is maybe a misconception that when you go into mediation or whatever on that case, that you're going to be able to let the other side think they won something when you agree to join, which I like the amount of currency that you're getting for coming in real hot and then get giving something up in quotation marks, um, when you go to mediation or settle the case, like I, I don't know. I don't right. think you're getting as much mileage out of that as, as you think you are. You're not, and you're burning a lot of capital by, let's just be honest, pissing off the other side unnecessarily and setting a bad tone for your case. 100%. I 100% agree with that. So here's my other thought about the joint legal joint physical custody, custody Kimye issue, which is, I, I think joint legal is in most cases appropriate, as long as you're able to make joint decisions. Um, you know, you don't have to agree all the time, but as long as you're able to make joint decision on those big issues, like health care, education, religious training. Um, and at least in Michigan, joint physical custody doesn't mean much. No, it, I mean, it means you can have nothing. Joint, yeah, you can have joint physical custody where the parenting time schedule is one parent gets every other weekend and half of school breaks and half of summer and the other parent gets all the rest and that's still joint physical custody. Right. It doesn't mean anything. 
And that right. was my thought when I heard what, how the complaint was filed was I, it doesn't really matter if they can make those big decisions together. What's going to matter is where the kids are putting their head at night. But from a street strategic standpoint, if the objective is to begin a case where, you know, everybody is in a, is in sort of a better place to sort of negotiate the finer points, I think it makes sense to, to posture the case that way, rather than, like we said, coming in sort of guns blazing with the, like, you know, most aggressive position you can take and then try to whittle it down from there. Right. I mean, this isn't a contract case, right? You're not coming in making a demand for $6.7 million when you know you're really willing to take three. Like, these are humans. Right. Right. I'll share with you this, this sort of funny story going to the joint physical custody thing, especially here in Michigan. And it was a private practice case that I had um, where it was sort of what you described. Dad had alternating weekends. Mom had, you know... Monday through Friday, every other Saturday and Sunday, and they did a uh, split of the holidays. And I think not even a split of the summer. I mean, I think, you know, the summer schedule sort of remained the same as the regular schedule, but each party got two weeks of uninterrupted parenting time. And as we sat around the, the, the mediation table and we're finalizing it with the recorder out, the other attorney jumps up and says, by the way, this has to say joint physical custody or my client won't agree. <laughs> this last minute, like we were being held hostage situation. And I remember my client just breaking down in utter panic because yeah. she, she thought that she was now being forced to have to agree to something that she didn't. And when I talked with her about it, I said, I'm going to lay it out for you. They can put joint physical in there. They can say dad has sole physical custody. I said, you could put in your judgment that I, as your attorney, am going to be people's sexiest man alive. And guess what? All of them have the exact same veracity. Okay. <laughs> it's none of it means anything. Okay. He doesn't, it's not going to impact any type of modifications moving forward. It doesn't give him any advantage. It doesn't diminish your role in your child's life. And I sure as hell, I'm not going to be people's sexiest man alive. So if you agree to it, you're agreeing to a nothing, just something that makes him feel better about the whole prospect of what he's signing up for. Well, and I think, I mean, I think that's the trend too, is more and more there's a recognition that it's just a label and it doesn't, it doesn't have the meaning that people ascribe to it. It really is something that just makes people feel better. Right. Um, I think it matters if you say someone is the primary custodian or it's the primary residence for purposes of school enrollment that matters mm -hmm. but i would love to get michigan domestic law to a place where when we say the word custody we're talking only about legal custody and everything else is captioned as parenting time i i think we're that we're going that direction yes good let's keep going everybody keep going there, in the statute, there's no definition of physical custody. I think it's just the case law. No, there's, there is no statute that anyone's found that, that identifies or defines physical custody. So here's another thought about the Kimye thing, which is when we're talking about parenting time, and I will tell you, I have seen possibly half of an episode of Keeping Up with the Kardashians, and I'm not a big Kanye fan, so I'm not real familiar with their lifestyle. 
Yeah. I would imagine that there's not a lot of parenting going on by parents or that there's a substantial amount of parenting that is proxied out to people for hire. I think that's probably a very fair and accurate representation of, and, and it's not picking on them. I don't think that they are unique when you are in a position where you are going from a photo shoot for a magazine to the Met Gala to, um, you know, filming a TV show and, and going on a family vacation without kids because it makes it easier to sort of project a PG-13 image that way. I, I don't think there's probably as much day-to-day -day parenting going on as there is in your life and my life and the lives of most of us. So, you know, I think certainly that's going to be something that they're going to have to be, or that they're already aware of and cognizant of when they start structuring these positions of, well, if he has the kids or she has the kids, who's really going to be watching them? Right? Right. Well, and I wondered too, when I, you know, had deep thoughts about Kimye was, um, I would expect there to be some pretty um, detailed drafting with respect to the provisions around parenting time, given some of the mental health concerns. And I don't, I don't want it to, to construe this as though like there are no problems with having, I think it's bipolar disorder. There are no problems with having a parent who has bipolar disorder. There's no reason to be concerned. And I also don't want to construe it as, well, it's not a problem that there's a bipolar parent. But I think that particularly given the nature of that disorder, you got to be a little bit careful, particularly with little tiny kids, that you're making sure that someone is safe to parent on a, a fairly predictable basis and whether or not that person is compliant with whatever medical, psychological treatment plan they're supposed to be under. So, I mean, if I were drafting a parenting time order for a parent who has bipolar disorder and a parent who doesn't, who is concerned, I mean, I would think I'd be putting some provisions in there about compliance with medication and therapy and you know, how do we shut down parenting time if it's unsafe and how do we identify whether or not it's unsafe, which is tricky. Right. As I'm, as I'm reading, I, I, a thought that I had as we were talking about this, I, look, I think, and if, if, if TMZ and Vanity Fair and Bustle, I've never heard of Bustle before. Um, but if those, if those media outlets are to believe, two things. Number one, they have a prenup, which would come as a surprise to nobody. Right. No. But then number two, and this sometimes is more surprising, that neither of them are contesting the terms of the prenup, which means all of their monetary and property issues have already been preordained. It's those decisions and, and those issues are now resolved, which means the singular issue in their case is going to be custody, parenting time, and I'm not sure anyone's really worried too much about a child support obligation where both parties have $100 million estates. Right. Right. That would be an interesting, 
that would be an interesting conversation to have because I mean the the estimates and reports of their of their combined net worth, you know, I think I've seen it as high as into the billions. Right. I'm sure that the prenup not only covered all their premarital stuff, but it probably covered all their earnings postmaritally as well. Right. I'm sure. Well, and, and, and look, and that, that makes sense. I mean, she, I know since they've been married, has, re- have re- has released a, a fashion line. He's had deals with Adidas, sneakerheads, you know. The presidential campaign. Well, the presidential campaign. But I and mean, he's, her, he's got Yeezys and, and his whole deal with Adidas plus his, his music. So, I mean, I'm sure when they signed the prenup, there was an expectation that it's not what we're coming in here with. It's we're building like this brand is growing. And if, and if this marriage ends, you know, I'm taking mine and you're taking yours. And well, and let's not forget her legal career. Oh, <laughs> did you have thoughts, Ryan? <laughs> I have so many thoughts on paying two people to teach you how to pass the bar exam without any other real, I'm trying to be careful in what I say on this because I don't. Well, what are the requirements? Like if you're doing the, it's, here's my understanding is that they're like it used to be in the old days before there was law school and a, and all that it was more of an apprenticeship deal where you served as an apprentice for a practicing lawyer and then took the bar exam and yeah you were good to go it's similar to that right am i right about that i i think it depends on where and and again we could do an entire podcast on why we continue to have 50 different jurisdictions be responsible for issuing licenses instead of sort of one national bar. Um, but I think, again, that that's going to be an entire podcast episode and not something we can get into today. My understanding is that California has requirements that basically like that basically outline that you don't need a bachelor's degree which I think you do in Michigan. I know, I'm just reading that right this second that you don't even have to have a bachelor's. Well, cause she doesn't. Um, you don't need a law degree. Uh, so you've now taken seven years off of somebody's you know, bill of having to go through the educational system. And that as long as you can pass the bar exam, you are good to go. Now, I'm not sure what, if there are additional apprenticeship things. By the way, 100% on board that, frankly, we could probably drop a year of law school and make your third year be a, you're going to learn under an attorney how to practice law, right? Like we need more of that than we do, you know, a third year of taking a class on sales or, you know, some other sort of, you know, how to speak Latin when drafting legal pleadings. Like we don't need that. Like we can drop some of those prereqs in our, in year three. So I guess California, you have, if you have no college degree, you have to take and pass the college level examination program, the CLEP. And then you've got to study under a judge or lawyer for four years and then pass the baby bar, which I don't even know what that is. 
within three administrations after first becoming eligible to take the examination. So as soon as you become eligible, you got to pass within three times of them giving that test to be eligible. But if you, if you don't pass it in three, you're done. Yeah. You can't just keep taking it. it again, I think my issues stem more from it's an uneven playing field for every. First off, I can't imagine doing what she is doing in order to get licensed as a lawyer is something that 90% of people would have an ability to do, right? right. Like you, you're, you're taking a big chunk of people and saying, sorry, nine out of 10 of you because you don't have independent wealth to allow you to sort of hang out with a lawyer for four years, you're out on this. Okay. Well, but by the same token, there are a lot of people who don't have independent wealth to pay tuition for law school. That's another podcast episode. <laughs> but it's related, though, I think. Sure. No, it Even is. It is another podcast episode. And I want to be very clear about this. The work that she's done for criminal justice reform, I think, has been, frankly, her most endearing contribution to society. Okay, because she has shed a light on people who have been incarcerated for cases for far too long. And those types of things, if that's what she plans on pursuing her legal career with, I think it's something that we need more of, okay? I, I mean, look, it's not a secret. Criminal justice reform was something that was at the forefront of the most recent election. And I think when you look at who was elected in those spots, locally, uh, federally, there is a bit of a mandate from the from the American people that we don't want to keep doing things the way we've done them. We need to change the system up a little bit. And she has done a lot of that work. And I think that's probably the one thing she's done that I like, great, more of. But like, I'm not going to her as, as my divorce attorney based on what everything that we've discussed to, to getting her to this point. I'd go to her current divorce attorney I go to Laura Wasser, but I'm not going to her. Do you think you can pay Laura Wasser's retainer? Hell no. <laughs> Hell, I'm her pro bono case for the year. There's no question about it. You're her good deed for the year. Like, don't, jinx, don't, don't jinx yourself by talking about using a divorce attorney. Yeah, no. I don't want to put that into the, into the universe. No, you don't. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, a lot of issues on that. But, but I think again, we could do an entire podcast series on how some of the sort of traditions and, and, and ministerial tasks of having 50 individual jurisdictions. And we all understand that we all have different local law that we have to understand. We all take the same, um, God, why can't I think of it? I've literally just spaced on it. Multi-state, the multi-state portion. Oh, yeah. The multiple choice part that I was dreading when I took my bar exam. Um, and I guess I give lawyers the benefit of the doubt that I think that if, if you're capable and competent enough to pass that portion of it, that whether you're a Michigan attorney, you could go into California and, and bring yourself up to speed on the nuances between Michigan, no fault law and California, you know, community property state. Well, okay, but let me be totally transparent here. And that is to say, I'm not confident that even if a Michigan attorney takes and passes the Michigan bar, that that means that they're competent to do anything but take and pass the bar. 
And I, there, so, are certainly, there are certainly people who take and pass the bar who then are competent to handle legal matters, but I don't, I don't think anyone should labor under the delusion that being able to take and pass a standardized test means that you are competent to go out and start filing stuff and litigating stuff or doing deals or like filing, you know, municipal claims or doing uh, asbestos litigation. Like it just doesn't make you competent to do anything except issue spot. That's it. But that's, but that's the sandbox that we're already playing in. Cause that's, I know, but I don't that's have to the like ticket. It. No, I get it. I'm just saying like, I, and again, I, to me, it goes back to more, I think if we had a more standard structured apprenticeship program where you had to learn from somebody, I think it would, and uh, you know, again, look, it's going to depend on who you're learning from. Exactly. But, you know, look, Abe Lincoln didn't take Barbary, you know, he didn't take PMBE and like, cram for a bar exam and then like go practice law in Illinois. He didn't do it. Right? right. But he was an apprentice and he, or he, you know, he, he learned from people. I mean, it's, it's sometimes trying to wrangle people into sort of these boxes of, well, this is the way we're going to do things so that it's more uniform it has created, you know, I think more frustration than, than saying, look, we, people need real life experience. Maybe something more akin to, maybe this is the better way of describing it. Maybe something more akin to doctors and medical school and going through a residency program. I absolutely agree with that. You know, I absolutely agree with that. And I think, and it should be required. Yeah. And I, I don't, I just don't think you can learn some things in the classroom. And I think some of what you learn in the classroom is useful, but it's not dispositive of what you need to know. I mean, that's what the whole podcast is about, right? Right. It's the whole point. But I, I think that there should be, even if you call it an internship instead of an apprenticeship and it's for credit, it doesn't matter to me, but you should be in a situation where it's boots on the ground I think that's why some of the attorneys that we see from legal aid or people who've done an internship at legal aid where the legal aid, I think legal aid is very good about putting student attorneys in the courtroom, yep. actually litigating, actually arguing motions, actually, you know, doing evidentiary stuff under the rule that allows that. Um, I think that's probably some of the best experience you can get. And, and I'll tell you, candidly, that was how I started. I worked for the Family Law, well, worked for, went, studied with the Family Law Assistance Project, Lakeshore Legal Aid. I had a licensed attorney who signed off on everything that I drafted. And Michigan law allows you as a student attorney, as long as you're, again, being watched by a licensed attorney to appear in court and argue cases. And so, I mean, as a third year law student, I remember arguing a parenting time issue before Judge Leo Bowman in the Oakland County Circuit Court. And I remember how petrified and horrified I was, but I will tell you, having doing that with the sort of, you know, security blanket of a licensed attorney sitting next to me, guess what? It made me a lot less nervous the first time I had to go do it when it was my own P number on the line. 
So here's my question to you about that is from a preparation standpoint for that first motion that you did as a student attorney to you know what you were doing later in private practice before you left private practice, how much time did you spend prepping for that first motion? And did you spend anywhere near that amount of time prepping for the motions that you did as you were preparing to leave private practice or close to the end of your tenure? No, I think, yeah, you certainly way more proper. I mean, I, I think, look, I remember when I did my first motion call argument in front of Judge Bowman, I'm pretty sure I had my entire argument like written out and typed up so that I didn't miss anything. And I, I made sure that I used every word exactly the way that I wanted to. And, you know, by the end, you know, it, it was nowhere near that, right? Because you're, you're far more comfortable, you're more confident, you, you can sort of, you know, run on the fly and come up with the arguments that you need to. It's not that you're not as prepared. I think that, look, I think, frankly, part of the problem that you see with attorneys is that that's the one thing that they let go of too soon is the, is the lack of preparation. You just prepare in different ways. But I, I certainly wasn't walking up there with my, you know, in year, whatever it was, year eight was before I got to the front of the court. I wasn't walking up there with my scripts anymore because I, you know, would study the case. I knew what we had and, and would present the arguments that way. Okay. So here, this is, it's triggering me because I do have a pet peeve and I feel like I see a fair amount of this where the legwork, there's been a lot of preparation legwork done, but it's all been done by a paralegal or an associate attorney. And the senior attorney is the one who wants to argue it, but they haven't done any of the prep work. Yes. So they get caught flat footed a lot of the time when you're asking questions that someone who knows the file should know. Yes, absolutely. There's no way. And, and, and look, and, and, and so part of that is that was my, I was fortunate that I worked at a very small law firm where the head of the firm delegated out the cases and, and we knew who was handling what. And I didn't ever worry. I, frankly, I had the other problem. I had the, I can't come in today, handle this deposition. But I didn't have the oh, thanks for doing all the run-up to this case, but I'm going to go get that 15 minutes of glory and, and argue this one on my own. I mean, oh, frankly, I have that in spades. It's, and, and I wish, look, we can talk about the billing aspect of it because I know that the money's a part of it, but I wish, I wish senior and older attorneys and partners understood that when you go down that path, you're sometimes doing a disservice to your client. Reading the work that your client, that your you know, first year has done or your paralegal has done, particularly when those are the folks who have had the boots on the grounds and are the ones talking with the clients. And, you've, and, and I guarantee you, you've seen this too, right? You've seen that senior attorney come into court and there is a complete disconnect with their client. Like yep. they don't have a clue what their client's comfortable with. They don't know what their client's bottom line is. But they took that file the night before and they read it, you know, with a glass of Chardonnay and they showed up the next morning ready to argue it, but they didn't really know the ins and outs. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've seen it in the last 24 hours. 
<laughs> recently as this morning. <laughs> I'm still pissed off, so I'd like to talk about it a little bit. We no, probably I, shouldn't record these episodes in the evening following a motion call, by the way. Well, I probably. didn't. Probably. We settled everything this week, so I didn't Good have. Good job. I know, I get a gold star this week. Um, but no, I think when you're, and I understand the billing aspect of it too, when you can get the, 80% of the work done by someone billing at 200 an hour instead of 400 an hour, that makes financial sense for the client, but it doesn't make financial sense for the client for the attorney to walk into a hearing, whether it's a motion hearing or an evidentiary hearing, and have questions that seem basic to me asked of the attorney and the attorney doesn't know. Yeah. And I, like I said, it's a huge disservice to the client because you, everybody knows what's going on. Well, I and it's just not effective advocacy. Right. I, I sometimes don't think the attorney, the, not the attorney. I sometimes I don't think the client knows that that's what's going on. I mean, I think they kind of know, but I don't think they really know. No. And I think there's probably a mindset from some clients of, oh, this is great. I'm getting you know, I'm getting the major league player and I'm not getting AAA. But sometimes, you know, that AAA player is the one that, that knows the pitches that are being thrown and they can stand in the batter's box more confidently than the big leaguer can because they know what's coming down the pipe. So you've and, gotten multiple sports references in today. So I'm yeah. very proud of you. Thank you. It was seamless, really. That one was totally on the fly too, but man, did it work. <laughs> All right, let's put let's put a bow on this. We're gonna two final questions. Number one. Yes. Will Kanye West remarry? Oof. Yeah, but I picture more of a like Julia Roberts Lyle Lovett situation for him. <laughs> Is that too old of a reference? Does no. anyone know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I've got it. <laughs> I've got, I've got it. I'm, I'm only 27 years old. So I don't think it's going to be another marriage where there are four children sired. I think it's going to be like a, yeah. I was having a manic episode and married someone in Las Vegas and now I am remedicated and let's remedy this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think if he does, maybe I'm projecting how I would feel if I was him, I would probably be trying to find my next wife, and I don't remember if he was married previously. I honestly don't know a lot about his personal life. I know his music. I don't know about, a lot about him personally, um, outside of the you know business enterprises and projects that he has. I know she was married. I thought it was just once. No, I this was her third. This, this was marriage number three. Yeah. But I would imagine in, if I was him that I would probably not want somebody to marry somebody who, you know, had a series of reality tv shows constantly in the pipeline like that's just that's a tough way to live under the microscope constantly i don't know and honestly i don't that's what the page six stuff is saying right so give treat that with whatever gravitas you want to but that he found that intolerable which i completely understand oh like, i don't even like people in my neighborhood knowing what i'm when i'm leaving and coming back yeah, I don't like people at my office knowing when I'm there and not. I don't. I don't want anybody knowing where I'm at. I, I certainly want, wouldn't want a film crew. Um, but I, yeah, I, I, 
listen, I'm just just from a from my perspective as somebody who has watched them play out. I, again, I did not watch Keeping Up with the Kardashians. My better half is a huge reality TV fan and watched the show. Um, it did not seem like he, from when I would pop in, that he was on. He certainly wasn't the focal point of the show. He would be on it, but he wasn't the, you know, if, if well, you know, who was the other guy? Scott Disick, right? Like that dude wanted to be in a starring role. He loved it. Kanye, not so much. So I think if I had a bet, yes, he'll remarry, but I think it's going to be with somebody who has a much lower profile. Here's question two. Does Kim Kardashian go for number four? Yes. Okay. She, I, just in looking at this, she's, well, she, she was married for the, to the first guy for four years. I don't know who Damon Thomas is. She was married to Chris Humphreys, who I do know played for the New Jersey Nets, now Brooklyn Nets, for two years. This is her longest marriage. It's been seven years. Well, I, they had four kids in seven years. I mean, that's, right. that's busy. She's been married to three guys almost as long as I've been married to one person. It also says she's only 5'2". I didn't know she was that short. She looks so much taller to me. But so does Tom Cruise. So, you know, whatever. Well, she's wearing heels most of the time. So she probably yeah, does that's true. taller all the time. That's true. Yeah, I mean, I would think so. She's relatively young, isn't she? 40 years old. She'll be 41 in October. By yeah, the way, I mean, just if you're listening to this, I have like the Wikipedia page pulled up. I don't know that like off the top of my head so <laughs> i'm not like some kardashian sycophant right well and i i mean i guess i'm just for both of my predictions i don't know them obviously no um, i thought you were like family friends with them <laughs> i was surprised you weren't retained as counsel to be honest i'm not in private practice anymore well so here let's let me deviate third and final question would you leave your job to represent kim kardashian as her attorney what's the retainer no well you <laughs> you you figure that out no i did have a private practice attorney ask me today if i missed it and she didn't even finish asking the question before i said no <laughs> like i just I just i don't and it's not it's obviously not because i didn't like the subject matter because i do like the subject matter. I do like what I do on a day-to-day -day basis, but going from private practice to this job, there were just so many layers of anxiety and stress that were no longer present. So I no longer have to concern myself with making sure that, you know, like my law firm supervisor is happy and that the senior partners at the law firm are happy. And that my client isn't angry and thinking about suing me or grieving me or any of those kinds of things. And I'm still worried about keeping the court happy, but it's in a different way. Um, and it's just, I can't imagine going, it would be, it would have to be like life changing house in the Maldives kind of money. Yeah, Kim Kardashian's divorce attorney. Still no. I think it gets you to the house in the Maldives. If but Laura I, Wasser somehow stumbles upon this obscure podcast and wants to call in one day and tell us what the retainer was, I would love to have that conversation. 
Well, I, I'd be, I would even promise not to publicize it if I could just know what it was. Yeah, no, just DM me on Instagram and just tell me just, just a number and I'd be fine with that. It's got to be a $500,000 retainer. I would think so. Right. And that's, that's just the retainer. That's not the monthly billing on top of it. Right. That's just, you get to call me your attorney and I file your complaint for you. I would expect that Ms. Wasser will clear a million on this case alone. Oh, I, there are people in Oakland County who clear. <laughs> I mean. Yeah, there are. No, there are. But, but I'm saying, I think a million's undershooting it. I, 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 like I said, I, there's going to be money made on this case. Oh, 100%. Which, is somewhat, which, which I will tell you is somewhat interesting only because returning to the original subject, you know, there is a prenup. So I know there's significant issues that are not going to have to be litigated, particularly if the reports are to be to believe that they are neither is contesting the prenup. Well, and it seems like they're on the same page with custody. So there's not that much to fight over. So they're really, I think, and, and that's another thing that we haven't talked about is if the parties are motivated to amicably resolve it and there aren't big differences, that's how it should be resolved. You shouldn't be committing malpractice or rolling over, but it, in, it makes me crazy when I see parties who I think would otherwise be good to go as far as resolving their case get stymied by attorneys who insist on doing extensive discovery that's unnecessary, who insist on litigating things that aren't necessary, and it ends up costing them a ton of money and psychological capital, emotional capital, when it just, it just shouldn't. Yeah. Anyway. Great points. Uh, all the best to Kim Ye. But mostly yeah. to their, mostly honestly, in all sincerity to their kids, because anytime mom and dad are, are splitting, that's a, that's a tough deal for children. So, you know, I always, whenever I read these stories, I always think, you know, hopefully the kids are getting the treatment and help and, and, and support that they need because their life is now going to be very different. So. Or maybe not. Or maybe not. <laughs> All right. Hey, peace out. Oh.